The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Thank you, Steve. Good morning, my friends. We're in the uh, Psalms this morning, Psalm 37, if you want to make your way there. The 37th Psalm. I'm thankful to be back with you this morning. I trust that everyone had a great Christmas. We're going to be, the title of the sermon this morning is A Map for Life in 2020. So I'm going to try to give us some directive as I've been thinking on things. This is a psalm that's been on my heart. I think it has a lot to say to us this morning. So I hope that you'll hear from the Lord in some great ways this morning as you begin to map out and think about the year ahead of you. So Psalm 37, we're going to deal with the first through probably the fifth or sixth verses there. Um, primarily verses 3, 4, and 5. Psalm 37. I want to I wanna, uh, talk to you a little bit about how to handle life in this approaching year. I'm not much of a, to be honest with you, I'm not much of a stop and smell the roses kind of guy. <laughs> I probably should be, but I'm not. That's just kind of not my nature, so um, I should probably be better at that, but I, I kind of want to handle, I kinda, that's kind of the way I handle life is I look ahead, and so I want to look ahead this morning to 2020. I want to give us a map for that, some things that have been on my heart, some things that I just, I think that are very important for us. So why this psalm and why today? So we're going to start, we're going to launch off into Philippians next week, um, this wonderful book, Philippians. But why this psalm and why today? I think the central issue in this psalm, what I'm going to talk about this morning, I, I think it's a prohibitor for us. I think it's a prohibitor for everyone in this room in some way, and I think we all wrestle with it. Um, I've been doing a lot of work on some other things outside of this church, and uh, it's been something that I've done some work on, and I think it's one of the things that's really kind of uh, infiltrated our culture in a lot of ways, and it's in your life. It's kind of like carbon monoxide. It's in your life. You can't smell it or taste it. It's just there, and so that's why we're doing with, dealing with this today. So I hope it's going to be helpful to you. I've packed it full of some really practical stuff. It's soaked in the text. It's soaked in theology, but there's some practical stuff in there as well. So Psalm 37, and uh, we'll pray and then jump off into this. So pray with me. Father, help us to, as we expend our energies, uh, help us in our heart and our minds to hear from you this morning. Give me words of encouragement and helpfulness as I aim to chart a course uh, for us into this new year ahead. I pray for Greg. I pray for Pastor Greg in the next chapter of his journey overseas. I'm thankful to you for his faithfulness. I'm thankful for your faithfulness to him thus far. Help him as he serves and loves others. Provide him encouragement. Provide him strength for the journey and meet his practical needs as well, Father. I'm thankful to you for the gospel of Jesus Christ and how you've called us to be children and live it out in this world. And so we do all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 37. You remember I told you a few weeks ago that Psalms, this is my language, the Psalms are keeping it real. That's what the Psalms are. They keep it real. So the Psalms that we, they, the Psalms, they really sort of deal with real life stuff. This stuff is raw emotion a lot of times from David and the other Psalters and everything. So they deal with the perplexing questions of life. They deal with issues of joy. They deal with issues of sorrow and anxiety. All of these things are wrapped up in the Psalms. And so what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to keep it real for us this morning and a lot of ways and so um, I think David does it here in this passage so here are the words of David in the opening verses of this psalm psalm 37 and verse 1 he says fret not yourselves because of evildoers be not envious of wrongdoers I'm going to talk to you about what those phrases mean for they shall soon soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb and then verse 3 he gives you an exhortation he says trust in the Lord do good 
Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. There's some repetition in this. We'll talk about that. Trust in him. There's that word again. And he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. We believe this psalm was penned at the hand of David. David kind of tips his hand to us a little bit in verse 25 here, and he gives us an important detail about the text. I think it's in verse 25 here. He tells us that he's old. David tells us that he's no longer a younger man, which is interesting for a psalm because he gives us a little bit of perspective. That's gonna set a perspective to us. So here it is that you have a man that he's writing a letter and he's telling you that he's older. And if you know anything about the text, if you know anything about the Bible, an older David is a much different man than a younger David, right? Think about it. An older David is a much different man than a younger David. By the time David was 37 years old, he had accomplished these incredible feats in life. He was 37 years old, we believe, and he's accomplished these incredible feats in his life. He was king over Israel. He had conquered Jerusalem. We have the story of Goliath in his life. And then sometime in his late 40s, so we're thinking about David as an old man here, right? Sometime in his late 40s, we see, honestly, this is one of the most miserable stories in the Bible, to be honest with you. From my perspective, in his his 40s, we, we hear this miserable story to me. It grieves me. It grieves me. It, I, it's painful for me to even read it. I have a hard time reading it. We all know the story of David's fall, fall. One day he looks out across and he sees this lady and he makes this statement and he desires her. He, he see this, this determination comes into his heart and this ultimately leads to a series of very painful and dark decisions for David. It's very painful and dark decisions for him, not the least of which was murder. And then the subsequent consequences of it. I tell people all the time, unquestionably, the hardest thing about being a pastor is having to explain consequences. It's the hardest thing you ever have to do as a pastor is explain people consequences. So so that's part of it. I can't, it's the hardest part of this to me. And so this psalm is probably written after David has had this full life of knowledge and wisdom. And he's imparting some real wisdom to people. He's been through some junk David's experienced some real things. He's a broken man. Some, this, some stuff he's brought on himself, some stuff that was imposed on him by a broken world. Sometimes this is the way sin works in this. Some, this man had seen incredible success. He had conquered kingdoms. He had taken hold of all that the world had to offer him. And, but at the end of the day, for all that the good or the bad that David had caused, he's just like you and I. He's broken. He's a broken man and he's living in a broken world and he's given us some wisdom. You learn more from failure than you do from success. And so David is imparting that wisdom to us this morning. And I think if we look carefully at this wisdom in this text, I think if we look carefully at this, we'll find a map for our life in the approaching year. I think we will. So for the younger David, if you're younger in here, if you're really under 40, this is just some wisdom of this. We're talking about how David's older and how this matters to all of us in here because there's multiple generations in this church. But if you're younger, if you're really under 40, you need to hear from folks that are older than you. If you're under 40, you need to hear from folks in your life that are older than you. Someone that's been through some stuff, things, people that have some experience, people that have lived in this world, a world that comes at you at full throttle. For those of you over 40, you need to hear from your peers. You need to hear from some people that's been in the same boat as you. You need to hear from a man that lived with the same type of injustices. 
If you're older, you've experienced a life full of injustice. You need to hear from a man that's lived with life and death and he's experienced life and death. He's done some things wrong. He's made some sacrifices. He's suffered some consequences of some missteps. This is what happens in your older age. Many of you can relate to this. And so I think if we live, listen carefully at whatever generation we're into this, we'll find a map for our lives in the approaching year. So what is the context of this psalm? We read the Bible in context. What is going on here? David gives us this in the first, first verses here. Look at what he says. The overarching theme, he says, Fret not yourselves because of evildoers, and be not envious of wrongdoers, for they soon shall fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. In verses 1 and 2 of this psalm, this overarching theme that I'm going to, I'm going to sort, it gives us an overarching theme, but I'm going to sort of reach underneath the text this morning and I'm going to pull something out of it and I'm going to give us a, a different kind of context on it in some ways. So Paul, David is telling us from the psalm, he says, to fret not because of evildoers. Do not be envious of evildoers. And at the core of this statement is the idea of envy, which, is, which results in fretting because the prosperous, the wicked are prospering. That's the core idea of this. I'm going to reach underneath this in a moment and pull, it, pull something out of it for you. But the ungodly are winning. That's what this psalm is, is telling us. This is what David is, is dealing with. The ungodly, they're being exalted in society. They seem to have it together. They seem to have affluence. They, they have these lofty positions. They have these comfortable lives. It seems like everything is happy. They're happy. Whatever you want to categorize as prosperous in our context today. And it's really disturbing. It's, sometimes this is disturbing to Christians right? Sometimes this is disturbing to the children of God. The prospering, the people that are prospering, they're not doing what's right. Have you ever experienced this? They're not doing what's right. And so it leads to envy or David tells us it leads to envy or it leads to this desire for immediate justice, aka fairness. You experience this, right? As a Christian, you experience this. So at the core of this idea is envy, and then it's also immediate justice. So you fall in, you probably fall into one of two of these categories at some point in time. Some of you probably weave in and out of them, but as you see the prosperous, the unrighteous prosperous, the one, they don't care about the right things. They don't care about the things that we care about. They're not living this stuff out. Sometimes it's even in your own communities. Even in your own churches, you see people doing things wrong. In the larger church community, you're you're thinking they're not doing things right and they're prospering. And so it tends to either either dump us into envy or it dumps us into this desire for justice. You want things to be fair. And so this is fretting. This is fretting, this is anxiety, this is worry, this is wringing your hands, so to speak. This is wringing your hands, and I don't think we're exempt from either one of these as Christians. I think this stuff infiltrates our life at any point in all of this. And so I I think it leads to some disturbing things. So in my opinion, this is the truth underneath verses 1 and 2 that I'm trying to pull out this morning. I'm going to put it in Brit's term. I think underneath all of this is this notion, and this is what I'm going to deal with this morning. I think at the core of all of this in Brit's term is a game of comparisons. It's a game of comparisons. This is the world we live in. It's really simple. In Brit's lingo, all David is saying to this here is if you look around, you're gonna find people that aren't doing the right thing. They're not doing the things that you're doing. They're not going through the things that you're going through and they're prospering. And the first thing that'll come to your mind in all of this as humans is why them? It's a game of comparisons. 
And not only does, it usually doesn't stop at that, right? This might, be the, this might be the largest issue right now in the culture, in my opinion. The world we live in right now is one of the largest issues we live in right now. We're swimming in this stuff. And so the key statement for us this morning is in order for you to fret or envy, fret over envy or justice or fairness, you have to first compare yourself to your, to, uh, compare yourself or your situation, you can't get to envy, you can't get to desire for immediate justice unless you're living a game of comparisons. You'll never get to these things and you're not, you, you, you'll, you're, you'll never get to them. Does that make sense to us this morning? I hope that makes sense to you. Underneath all of this is this game of comparison because we're always asking why them. But here's the kicker to all of this. <laughs> when you ask this question, it doesn't stop there. It usually goes, why them and not me? right? The question never stops at why them. It always comes back to you. It's a game of comparisons in there. Why those people and not my people? Why me and not them? And so this this game of comparison. And so I really believe this is a key issue that we're dealing with right now. So there's always, David's going to give us directive in all of this. And so I believe that this is a key issue for us. And so when, really when you deal with any issue like this, there's always ditches on, on, the, on, on every side of everything in the Bible. There's ditches on it. And what I mean by that is we live a life in balance. So David is saying, don't compare yourself to others or you'll get out of balance. That's in a nutshell kind of what he's saying here. The Christian life is a game of balance. And so you walk in this Christian life and there's all they always, I tell people, I tell students and stuff all the time, there's always ditches on both sides of doctrines. Every doctrine you deal with, there's ditches on both sides of it. And so there's ditches on both sides of this. When you play a game of comparisons, you'll either wander off into envy this happens. This is normal life. You're experiencing this. You either wander off into envy or you'll have this desire for fairness, for fairness in your life and you land in one of two ditches. The first ditch is this. If you do this, if you live this game of comparison and you wander off into this, the first ditch is fretting. You're going to fret. You're going to stress. You're going to be anxious. And so what happens in fretting, I'm trying to be helpful to you this morning. Fretting, it sort of raises these evil passions up in you. As you fret in the game of comparisons, you can, it can lead to greed. It can lead to undercutting. It can lead to anxiety or worry. All of these sorts of things you can backbite. You can hurt people. The second thing that fretting leads to is it robs you of your joy. The game of comparison, it robs you of your joy. I'm going to talk to you about that a little bit in, in a minute. Third, it creates this sense of inferiority or this insecurity in your life. This is the enemy at work in your life. This is fretting. Sometimes it provokes anger or resentment. Or how about this? If you fret, this is a ditch on one side of comparison. If you fret, it will take your focus, it will take your focus off the lot that God's given you. It'll take your focus off of it. We live in America, I believe this, and so there's opportunity to improve yourself. I'm not a help, help, self-help Messiah. I'm not Dale Carnegie or anybody like this, but I believe that we have opportunity to prove ourselves here. And so I think that if you live in this ditch, if you live in this ditch of, in, of, of fretting and you live in all of this stuff, if you live under fret and you live in this game of comparisons, you'll never live a focused or disciplined life with the lot that God's given you. God's putting you on a path, and so he's, he's, the, the fret, it takes away from that. It robs you of all of these things. So as you play the game of comparisons, you'll either end up fretting in envy, or the second ditch to all of this is you'll land in self-righteousness or pride. There's ditches on both sides of the comparison game. The second thing that you'll do if you don't envy and fret, you'll, you'll deal with pride and self-righteousness. And to be honest with you, I'd rather deal with someone that's lost in envy 
than someone lost in self-righteousness and pride. That's my opinion. I can deal with someone that has some envy going on. It's, I think, think self-righteousness and pride are some of the most repulsive things in the church, just to be honest with you. I love you, but I'll just be honest with you. And we all deal with this stuff at some point in time. And so there's this t- tendency in the Christian world. I love you. I'm just trying to be honest with you this morning. I'm going to give you some encouragement here. I know stuff is tough. But there's this tendency in the Christian world to say, well, I don't have such and such, and I have, but I have my faith, and I love God, and I love the right things, and I'm doing the right things, and I'm raising my kids the right way, and I got great kids, and I love Jesus, and I'm doing doing all this stuff right. I don't have what they have, but man, they ain't doing it like I'm doing it. And let me just say to you, my Pharisee friend, the Bible tells you that you have a plank in your eye. Pull the plank out of your eye. I love you, but that's the truth. If you play the game of comparison, sometimes the Christian is bent towards saying, I'm doing the right things. I ain't got what he's got, but man, I got it together in my parenting. Or I show up here every week and do stuff in the church. So self-righteousness and pride. I have several people in my life. Listen to this. this is, I'm just trying to help you this morning. I have several people in my life that I trust. I trust them, and God is my witness. They have, a open, they have an open dialogue with me. They can call me at any point and call me to the floor. At any point, they have the ability to call me and say, Britt, you're blowing it in this area. And they do it. (laughs) And they're not yes men. Be careful with these people, but I have these people in my life. And they don't have a problem bumping up against my chest. And we have this understanding in my life to keep me from this. And they have an understanding that when they ping me, I trust them. And if they say something to me, I'm going to take their advice. I'm going to listen to them. I'm going to try to take action on them. I don't push back against them. I have these people in my life. Put these people in my life. Don't put yes men in your life. Don't put enablers in your life. Put people in your life that will keep it real with you. That will keep you from this stuff. And so I have them, they have access to my life, they have the right to ping me. Sometimes I can't stand it, but they're a blessing to me. And I thank God for their willingness to be honest with me. I thank God for their willingness to be honest with me. So when you, when you deal in the game of comparisons, you can either fall into fret or you can either fall into self-righteousness. Sometimes if you're like me and you don't have anything together, you just weave back and forth between these sometimes. So we live in a world of comparisons. And so we have to fight to maintain balance, to maintain a healthy balance and avoid these ditches. And so how do we do this? When you play the game of comparisons, which you will, When you play the game of comparisons, you'll wander off into envy or desire for immediate justice. And if you do that, you'll land in the ditches of fretting or you'll land in this ditch of self-righteousness and pride. And so that is one type of map for your life. That's one map for your life in 2020. You can take this path. You're bent to this. You can take this path if you want to. But if we listen carefully to the wisdom of this psalm here, I think we'll find a better map for our life. I think we'll find a better way for our life. So how do we make the right path? What is the right, what is the right path here? Look at what David does in the text here. He tells us, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. He's telling you straight. This is straightforward common language. Commit your way to the Lord and trust him and he will act. This is why the Psalms are so good. They're plain to us. So the first thing is this, trust in the Lord. Three times in this, David tells us, he tells us twice straight out to trust in the Lord. You see that in the text? He says, trust in the Lord and trust him. And then he says in another way, he says, commit your way to the Lord. 
You see that in verse 5? And then look at what he says here. He says, dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. This is the notion of trusting. There are, there, th- these, these are all ways of trusting the Lord. This sounds great. <laughs> How many times have you heard a pastor or a preacher just say, trust the Lord? <laughs> just trust the Lord. Sometimes, I, sometimes growing up, I was like, I don't even know what that means anymore. That sounds all spiritual and stuff, but what in the world does that even mean? I want to trust the Lord, but I need something else in that. I want to tr- How do I trust the Lord? And, and the more, the more, the more it's, there's more to answering that question fundamentally. I think one of the major graces, this is the answer to it. How do you trust the Lord? You lean on his providence. <laughs> his providence is a grace to you. This is the doctrine underneath this text. How do you trust in the Lord? You, you, you lean on his providence. His providence is so sweet and it's a major part of how you trust the Lord. Let me explain to you. What is the providence of God? We sling these words around all the time. What are we even talking about? It sounds great for me to stand up here and say, trust the Lord in his providence, but what does that even mean? <laughs> so I'm gonna explain it to you. Providence is God's, there's so, much, there's so much in this. Providence is God's active and watchful care upon his children. His active and watchful care care, care, care. Do you hear that word? Care upon his children. Providence is seated in the idea of care. God's providence is him caring for you. How do you trust in the Lord? You lean upon his providence. You lean upon his providence. Providence isn't chance or good fortune. Providence doesn't release you from prudence. It doesn't release you from responsibility or caution or any of these types of things. But in order to fully trust God, you've got to believe in his providence or otherwise you'll get anxious. You don't understand. God orchestrates things in your lives. He cares for you. He's not leaving you on an island. This is providence. How do we trust in God? We lean upon his providence. There's benefits to providence. Did you know that? Did you know there's benefits to this? How do you trust in the Lord? You lean upon his providence. You lean upon what he's doing in your life. What are the benefits of providence? Providence will give you gratitude. Providence will give you gratitude. We're told to trust the Lord. We're told to lean upon his providence. What does providence do for me? It'll give you gratitude. If you ground your trust in God's providence, you'll live in gratitude because you realize that nothing happens apart from his watchful care. Are you tracking with me on that? His active hand in your life. Providence also, it frees you from worry. Providence will free you from worry. When you trust in God, you don't worry. How do you, how do you trust in God? You lean upon his providence. You'd be a mess if God didn't ha- wasn't providential over your life. You'd be a mess. I told you this the other week. I don't know how people get out of bed that don't understand and believe in this stuff. You'd be an anxious mess. You, you've got to be cautious. You've got to be responsible. This doesn't, this doesn't absorb you from any kind of responsibility, but, you, but it frees you from worry. The third thing that providence does is that it gives you patience and fight in the middle of adversity. Why? Because you know that God's ordained it. You know that there's nothing that happens in your life apart from his watchful care. If you believe that your situation is part of God's active and watchful care to you, however painful it is, whatever's going on in your life, you'll stand firm. 
You remember that last week? You'll stand firm. It'll give you resolve in the midst of adversity. You'll have patience in the middle of the fight. You'll handle yourself with respect and dignity and character. I've seen so many people in the Christian faith that believe this, and you cannot match the dignity and the, care and the character that they carry themselves with in the middle of adversity. How do they do it, Britt? They trust in God. How do they trust in God? They believe in his providence. They believe in his watchful care. You carry yourself with dignity and purpose as you navigate adversity through the doctrine of providence. So this is the first part of the map for 2020. You trust in God's providence. He gives you gratitude. It gives you freedom from worry. It gives you patience. What is the second thing David tells us? It's plain in front of the text. I'm trying to teach you how to read the Bible as well. He says, trust in the Lord and do good. Do good. This is an action statement. This, this, the psalm maps a course for us by grounding everything in the idea of God's providence. But then he gives us fur, further, further clarification here. The game of comparisons which leads to envy and desire for immediate or fairness or justice. Avoiding this game, it doesn't mean that you sit on your hands and self-reflect. You see how David balances human responsibility with God's providence even in this text? He doesn't say, just trust in the Lord and hang out, man. <laughs> he gives you an action word in there. He says, do good. I'm, I'm not called to sit around and navel gaze or contemplate with spiritual language about having what I, not having what I need. The word of the living God in this passage does not say, avoid comparisons, avoid envy and desire for immediate fair, fairness and commune with God and be idle until Jesus comes back and just sit around and think. He doesn't say that. The text doesn't say that. The text, it presses you into action. Action. He calls you into action. He gives you theology. He gives you practice. Over and over and over, I say this, head, heart, hands. He gives you all of this in this text. Everywhere there's theology, there's practice. Paul in his letters, theology, application, practice, go do something. So what does Paul tell you to do? He says, trust God. We talked about how that can be. We're like, what does that mean? He says, be faithful. But then he says, do good. David does what the rest of the Bible does. He balances his out and he does, and he says, he, he says, do good. Listen, doing good, doing good, it often results in justice. Doing good, it often results in fairness. But justice, immediate justice and prosperity, they're not evil. I like justice. I'm a justice guy. <laughs> Uh, talking to a close friend of mine last week, his brother's a judge. We were talking about justice. I like justice. I like justice. I think it's healthy, but don't, don't stretch the text to mean that. Don't stretch the text to mean that, but justice, it shouldn't be your aim. It shouldn't drive you. Justice or no prosperity should be the motive. It should not be the motive for doing good. It shouldn't be your motive. You do good because your life is aimed at glorifying God. You do good because that's what a disciple of Jesus Christ does. I often say with people I lead inside the church and outside the church, the number one rule of leadership is do the right thing all the time no matter what. Do the right thing all the time no matter what. This is what David is getting at here but what is doing good? <laughs> Here's another phrase. What does do good mean? It gets sketchy, Britt. It means doing the right thing. How, it means living in the right way. What is the right thing to do? What does do good mean? It means if you do this the rest of your life, it means putting others' interests before your own. We trust in God. 
We're called to do good. What do you do? How do you do good? You put others' interests before yourself. If you do that, if you do that, then you'll always be doing good, in my opinion. That's the right thing to do no matter what. And so there's so much in this phrase, do good, but we can, we can apply it in a million different ways. This is what David is telling us here. He's saying do good. It's grounded in the gospel. That's the most important thing for this. It's grounded in the gospel. We don't just do good to get the warm and fuzzies. We do good in order that the gospel might be known. This is what our city groups are for. This is what the church is for. We do good in order to reach folks with the hope of salvation. This is the aim of all of it. So that's the second part of this to do good we believe justice is not wrong we do good and sometimes justice occurs from that and so I think the third thing here that David tells us to do is we map our lives we trust in the Lord we do good and the final thing here is delight in God the final thing is delight in God I think delight in God comes primarily from knowing God Throughout the psalm, the knowledge of God is the primary means by which we delight in God. What does the knowledge of God mean? It's testified, it's in the scriptures. The true God, he's ordained joy and happiness for you within our lives, but more specifically, he's done it, he's done it, joy and happiness is dependent upon knowledge of God and adherence to his word. How do I know that, Britt? The first psalm gives us this. Psalm one, it introduces the reader to this truth. He says, blessed is the man, happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands, you've heard this text a million times if you've been in church, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits at the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. It introduces the reader to this idea that happiness and joy is dependent upon the knowledge of God. It's dependent upon the truth of scriptures. The blessing of God therefore hinges, this is so important for us, the blessing of God therefore hinges, it therefore hinges, catch this, on the individual's level of delight or adherence to the word of God. That's what blessing is in your life. We trust God we do good, we delight in God. The blessing of God, it hinges on an individual's level of adherence to the law of the Lord. The Old Testament, the New Testament, the Bible, the law. Based upon Psalm 1, there is a direct correlation between blessedness and, and adherence to God's way, which is detailed exclusively in the scriptures. How do we know God? How do we delight in God? We've got to know who God is. God is the, is, is, he's, given, he's revealed himself to us in scriptures. This is how we, de, this is how we delight in God. This is how we delight in God. And so when you play a game of comparisons, which you will, and if you wander off into envy or desire for immediate justice, which you will, you'll crash into these ditches of fretting and you'll land in, or you'll land in this ditch of self-righteousness and pride. But if you, if you play the game of comparisons and you, if you don't play that and you live intentionally to trust God in his providence, to do good, to do the right thing no matter what, you'll land in joy and you'll land in God's favor. So I got some illustrations for you here. Joy and favor in God's action. I've got an illustration for you here. Look at my beautiful handwriting again. <laughs> I gotta keep you on your toes by making you look at my great handwriting here. So David tells us in verses four and five, he says, delight, delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. He will act. If you do these things that he's telling you, he's t the scripture is telling you that if you do these things, God will give you the desires of his heart and he will act. If we trust in his goodness and we trust in his providence, we do good and we delight in his truth, he will not abandon you. He will not abandon you. This is the first map of your life in 2020. This is a choice you have to make. 
The game of comparisons, it can lead to envy or desire for immediate justice. And if it, if it, if it lands into either one of those, you're going to crash into fret and you're going to crash into pride and self-righteousness. This is an option for you in 2020. And then go to the next one. Here's, the, here's, the, here's what David, this is the map that David is telling us here. David is telling us that if you live in the game of comparisons, which you will, this is all around you in the world you live in, the game of comparisons, it stops with the trust in God's providence and benefits therein. You can stop this game by trusting in God's providence. You can stop this game by delighting in God. You can stop this game by doing good. And if you do those three things, the Bible is clear that God will give you. You will gain joy and you will gain God's favor in your actions. And there's a lot to God's favor in your actions. I, I can't even get into all of this today. I can't stand up here. I'd be, I'd be foolish to stand up here and, and, and tell you how God's going to be involved in your life if you live these things out. I have no idea what God's going to do. I have no idea what God's going to do in your situation. I can't make any promises about what God will or won't do in 2020 if you live by this map. I'd be a fool to claim that. I don't want to make those claims because God does all kinds of stuff. He's multidimensional. But if your focus is on those three things right there, I can promise you that he will not leave you. Matter of fact, I think he'll close in on you. I think he'll close in on you. If you fight against the game of comparisons, if you trust in God's providence and the benefits of that providence, if you do good grounded in the gospel, if you get after it and advance the gospel and focus on your light, you'll have joy and God's favor will be in your life. He will act. David tells us in the end of this psalm, he does not sit still. He will bring forth your righteousness. That's the promise. God will not be still. That's the promise for you and I. So may the gospel of Jesus Christ strengthen your resolve to follow this map in 2020. And may we be people that fight against a life of comparison. May we trust in God's providence and may we do good for the glory of God and the advancement of the gospel, all in an effort to gain joy and God's favor in action. Amen and amen. Let's pray.